Chapter Thirteen, Part Two, of the Rainbow, by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She was here in this hard, stark reality, reality. It was queer that she should call this the reality which she had never known till to-day, and which now so filled her with dread and dislike that she wished she might go away. This was the reality, and Cossetay, her beloved, beautiful, well-known Cossetay, which was as herself unto her, that was the minor reality. This prison of a school was reality. Here, then, she would sit in state, the queen of scholars, here she would realise her dream of being the beloved teacher, bringing light and joy to her children. But the desks before her had an abstract angularity that bruised her sentiment and made her shrink. She winced, feeling she had been a fool in her anticipations. She had brought her feelings and her generosity to where neither generosity nor emotion were wanted, and already she felt rebuffed, troubled by the new atmosphere, out of place. She slid down, and they returned to the teacher's room. It was queer to feel that one ought to alter one's personality. She was nobody. There was no reality in herself. The reality was all outside of her, and she must apply herself to it. Mr. Harby was in the teacher's room, standing before a big, open cupboard, in which Ursula could see piles of pink blotting-paper, heaps of shiny new books, boxes of chalk, and bottles of coloured inks. It looked a treasure-store, the schoolmaster was a short, sturdy man, with a fine head and a heavy jowl. Nevertheless he was good-looking, with his shapely brows and nose, and his great hanging moustache. He seemed absorbed in his work, and took no notice of Ursula's entry. There was something insulting in the way he could be so actively unaware of another person, so occupied. When he had a moment of absence he looked up from the table and said good-morning to Ursula. There was a pleasant light in his brown eyes. He seemed very manly and incontrovertible, like something she wanted to push over. "'You had a wet walk,' he said to Ursula. "'Oh, I don't mind. I'm used to it,' she replied, with a nervous little laugh. But already he was not listening. Her words sounded ridiculous and babbling. He was taking no notice of her. "'You'll sign your name here,' he said to her, as if she were some child, "'and the time when you come and go.' Ursula signed her name in the time-book and stood back. No one took any further notice of her. She beat her brains for something to say, but in vain. "'I'd let them in now,' said Mr. Harby, to the thin man, who was very hastily arranging his papers. The assistant teacher made no sign of acquiescence, and went on with what he was doing. The atmosphere in the room grew tense. At the last moment Mr. Brunt slipped into his coat. "'You will go to the girls' lobby,' said the schoolmaster to Ursula with a fascinating, insulting geniality, purely official and domineering. She went out and found Miss Harby and another girl-teacher in the porch. On the asphalt yard the rain was falling. A toneless bell tang-tang-tanged drearily overhead, monotonously, insistently. It came to an end. Then Mr. Brunt was seen, bareheaded, standing at the other gate of the schoolyard, blowing shrill blasts on a whistle, and looking down the rainy, dreary street. Boys in gangs and streams came trotting up, running past the master, and with a loud clatter of feet and voices, over the yard to the boys' porch. Girls were running and walking through the other entrance. 
In the porch where Ursula stood there was a great noise of girls, who were tearing off their coats and hats, and hanging them on the racks, bristling with pegs. There was a smell of wet clothing, a tossing out of wet, draggled hair, a noise of voices and feet. The mass of girls grew greater, the rage around the pegs grew steadier, the scholars tended to fall into little noisy gangs in the porch. Then Violet Harby clapped her hands, clapped them louder, with a shrill, Quiet, girls! Quiet! There was a pause. The hubbub died down, but did not cease. What did I say? cried Miss Harby, shrilly. There was almost complete silence. Sometimes a girl, rather late, whirled into the porch and flung off her things. Lead us in place, commanded Miss Harby, shrilly. Pairs of girls in pinafores and long hair stood separate in the porch. Stand at four, five and six, fall in, cried Miss Harby. There was a hubbub, which gradually resolved itself into three columns of girls, two and two, standing smirking in the passage. In among the peg-racks other teachers were putting the lower classes into ranks. Ursula stood by her own standard five. They were jerking their shoulders, tossing their hair, nudging, writhing, staring, grinning, whispering, and twisting. A sharp whistle was heard, and Standard Six, the biggest girls, set off, led by Miss Harby. Ursula, with her Standard Five, followed after. She stood beside a smirking, grinning row of girls, waiting in a narrow passage. What she was herself, she did not know. Suddenly the sound of a piano was heard, and Standard Six set off hollowly down the big room. The boys had entered by another door. The piano played on, a march tune. Standard Five followed to the door of the big room. Mr. Harby was seen away beyond at his desk. Mr. Brunt guarded the other door of the room. Ursula's class pushed up. She stood near them. They glanced and smirked and shoved. "'Go on,' said Ursula. They tittered. "'Go on,' said Ursula, for the piano continued. The girls broke loosely into the room. Mr. Harby, who had seemed immersed in some occupation, away at his desk, lifted his head and thundered, HALT! There was a halt. The piano stopped. The boys who were just starting through the other door pushed back. The harsh, subdued voice of Mr. Brunt was heard, then the booming shout of Mr. Harby from far down the room, Who told standard five girls to come in like that? Ursula crimsoned. Her girls were glancing up at her, smirking their accusation. I sent them in, Mr. Harby, she said, in a clear, struggling voice. There was a moment of silence. Then Mr. Harby roared from the distance. Go back to your places, standard five girls. The girls glanced up at Ursula, accusing, rather jeering, fugitive. They pushed back. Ursula's heart hardened with ignominious pain. Forward, march, came Mr. Brunt's voice. Then the girls set off, keeping time with the ranks of boys. Ursula faced her class some fifty-five boys and girls who stood filling the ranks of the desks. She felt utterly non-existent. She had no place nor being there. She faced the block of children. Down the room she heard the rapid firing of questions. She stood before her class, not knowing what to do. She waited painfully. Her block of children, fifty unknown faces, watched her, hostile, ready to jeer, she felt as if she were in torture over a fire of faces, and on every side she was naked to them. Of unutterable length and torture the seconds went by. 
Then she gathered courage. She heard Mr. Brunt asking questions in mental arithmetic. She stood near to her class, so that her voice need not be raised too much, and, faltering, uncertain, she said, Seven hats at twopence apenny each. A grin went over the faces of the class, seeing her commence. She was red and suffering. Then some hands shot up like blades, and she asked for the answer. The day passed incredibly slowly. She never knew what to do. There came horrible gaps when she was merely exposed to the children, and when, relying on some pert little girl for information, she had started a lesson, she did not know how to go on with it properly. The children were her masters. She deferred to them. She could always hear Mr. Brunt, like a machine, always in the same hard, high, inhuman voice he went on with his teaching, oblivious of everything. And before this inhuman number of children she was always at bay. She could not get away from it. There it was, this class of fifty collective children, depending on her for command, for command it hated and resented. It made her feel she could not breathe, she must suffocate, it was so inhuman. There were so many that they were not children, they were a squadron. She could not speak as she would to a child because they were not individual children, they were a collective, inhuman thing. Dinner time came, and stunned, bewildered, solitary, she went into the teacher's room for dinner. Never had she felt such a stranger to life before. It seemed to her she had just disembarked from some strange, horrible state, where everything was as in hell, a condition of hard, malevolent system. And she was not really free. The afternoon drew at her like some bondage. The first week passed in a blind confusion. She did not know how to teach, and she felt she would never know. Mr. Harby came down every now and then to her class to see what she was doing. She felt so incompetent as he stood by, bullying and threatening, so unreal that she wavered, became neutral and non-existent. But he stood there watching with the listening, genial smile of the eyes, that was really threatening. He said nothing. He made her go on teaching. She felt she had no soul in her body. Then he went away, and his going was like a derision. The class was his class. She was a wavering substitute. He thrashed and bullied. He was hated. But he was master. Though she was gentle and always considerate of her class, yet they belonged to Mr. Harby, and they did not belong to her. Like some invincible source of the mechanism, he kept all power to himself. And the class owned his power. And in school it was power and power alone that mattered. Soon Ursula came to dread him, and at the bottom of her dread was a seed of hate, for she despised him. Yet he was master of her. Then she began to get on. All the other teachers hated him, and fanned their hatred among themselves. For he was master of them and the children. He stood like a wheel to make absolute his authority over the herd. That seemed to be his one reason in life, to hold blind authority over the school. His teachers were his subjects as much as the scholars. Only, because they had some authority, his instinct was to detest them. Ursula could not make herself a favourite with him. From the first moment she set hard against him. She set against Violet Harby also. Mr. Harby was, however, too much for her. He was something she could not come to grips with, something too strong for her. She tried to approach him as a young, bright girl usually approaches a man, expecting a little chivalrous courtesy. But the fact that she was a girl, a woman, 
was ignored or used as a matter for contempt against her. She did not know what she was, nor what she must be. She wanted to remain her own responsive, personal self. So she taught on. She made friends with the Standard Three teacher, Maggie Schofield. Miss Schofield was about twenty years old, a subdued girl who held aloof from the other teachers. She was rather beautiful, meditative, and seemed to live in another, lovelier world. Ursula took her dinner to school, and during the second week ate it in Miss Schofield's room. Standard Three classrooms stood by itself and had windows on two sides, looking on to the playground. It was a passionate relief to find such a retreat in the jarring school, for there were pots of chrysanthemums and coloured leaves, and a big jar of berries. There were pretty little pictures on the wall, photogravure reproductions from Gruse and Reynolds' Age of Innocence, giving an air of intimacy, so that the room, with its window space, its smaller, tidier desks, its touch of pictures and flowers, made Ursula at once glad. Here at last was a little personal touch, to which she could respond. It was Monday. She had been at school a week, and was getting used to the surroundings, though she was still an entire foreigner in herself. She looked forward to having dinner with Maggie. That was the bright spot in the day. Maggie was so strong and remote, walking with slow, sure steps down a hard road, carrying the dream within her. Ursula went through the class teaching as through a meaningless daze. Her class tumbled out at midday in haphazard fashion. She did not realise what host she was gathering against herself by her superior tolerance, her kindness, and her laissez-aller. They were gone, and she was rid of them, and that was all. She hurried away to the teacher's room. Mr. Brunt was crouching at the small stove, putting a little rice pudding into the oven. He rose then, and attentively poked in a small saucepan on the hob with a fork. Then he replaced the saucepan lid. "'Aren't they done?' asked Ursula, gaily, breaking in on his tense absorption. She always kept a bright, blithe manner, and was pleasant to all the teachers, for she felt like the swan among the geese, of superior heritage and belonging, and her pride at being the swan in this ugly school was not yet abated. "'Not yet,' replied Mr. Brunk, laconic. "'I wonder if my dish is hot,' she said, bending down at the oven. She half expected him to look for her, but he took no notice. She was hungry, and she poked her fingers eagerly in the pot to see if her Brussels sprouts and potatoes and meat were ready. They were not. "'Don't you think it's rather jolly bringing dinner?' she said to Mr. Brunt. "'I don't know as I do,' he said, spreading a serviette on a corner of the table, and not looking at her. "'I suppose it is too far for you to go home?' "'Yes,' he said. Then he rose and looked at her. He had the bluest, fiercest, most pointed eyes that she had ever met. He stared at her with growing fierceness. "'If I were you, Miss Brangwen,' he said menacingly, "'I should get a bit tighter hand over my class.' Ursula shrank. "'Would you?' she asked sweetly, yet in terror. "'Aren't I strict enough?' "'Because,' he repeated, taking no notice of her, "'they'll get you down if you don't tackle em pretty quick. "'They'll pull you down and worry you, "'till Harvey gets you shifted. "'That's how it'll be.' "'You won't be here another six weeks.' And he filled his mouth with food. "'If you don't tackle em, and tackle em, quick.' "'Oh, but,' Ursula said, resentfully, ruefully. The terror was deep in her. "'Harby'll not help you. This is what he'll do. He'll let you go on, getting worse and worse, till either you clear out or he clears you out. 
It doesn't matter to me, except that you'll leave a class behind you, as I hope I shan't have to cope with. She heard the accusation in the man's voice, and felt condemned. But still, school had not yet become a definite reality to her. She was shirking it. It was reality, but it was all outside her, and she fought against Mr. Brunt's representation. She did not want to realise. "'Will it be so terrible?' she said, quivering, rather beautiful, but with a slight touch of condescension, because she would not betray her own trepidation. "'Terrible!' said the man, turning to his potatoes again. "'I don't know about terrible.' "'I do feel frightened,' said Ursula. "'The children seem so—' "'What?' said Miss Harby, entering at that moment. "'Why?' said Ursula. "'Mr. Brunt says I ought to tackle my class.' And she laughed uneasily. "'Oh, you have to keep order if you want to teach,' said Miss Harby. "'Hard, superior, trite.' Ursula did not answer. She felt non-valid before them. "'If you want to be let to live, you have,' said Mr. Brunt. "'Well, if you can't keep good order, what good are you?' said Miss Harby. "'And you've got to do it by yourself,' his voice rose like the bitter cry of the prophets. "'You'll get no help from anybody.' "'Oh, indeed,' said Miss Harby. "'Some people can't be helped.' And she departed. The air of hostility and disintegration, of wills working in antagonistic subordination, was hideous. Mr. Brunt, subordinate, afraid, acid with shame, frightened her. Ursula wanted to run. She only wanted to clear out, not to understand. Then Miss Schofield came in, and with her another, more restful note. Ursula at once turned for confirmation to the newcomer. Maggie remained personal within all this unclean system of authority. "'Is the big Anderson here?' she asked, of Mr. Brunt. And they spoke of some affair about two scholars, coldly, officially. Miss Schofield took her brown dish, and Ursula followed with her own. The cloth was laid in the pleasant standard three-room. There was a jar with two or three monthly roses on the table. "'It is so nice in here. You have made it different,' said Ursula gaily. But she was afraid. The atmosphere of the school was upon her. "'The big room,' said Miss Schofield. "'Ha! It's misery to be in it!' She too spoke with bitterness. She too lived in the ignominious position of an upper servant hated by the master above and the class beneath. She was, she knew, liable to attack from either side at any minute, or from both at once, for the authorities would listen to the complaints of parents, and both would turn round on the mongrel authority, the teacher. So there was a hard, bitter withholding in Maggie Schofield, even as she poured out her savoury mess of big golden beans and brown gravy. "'It is a vegetarian hot-pot,' said Miss Schofield. "'Would you like to try it?' "'I should love to,' said Ursula. Her own dinner seemed coarse and ugly beside this savoury, clean dish. "'I've never eaten vegetarian things,' she said. "'But I should think they can be good.' "'I'm not really a vegetarian,' said Maggie. "'I don't like to bring meat to school.' "'No,' said Ursula. "'I don't think I do either.' And again her soul rang an answer to a new refinement, a new liberty. If all vegetarian things were as nice as this, she would be glad to escape the slight uncleanness of meat. "'How good!' she cried. "'Yes,' said Miss Schofield, and she proceeded to tell her the receipt. The two girls passed on to talk about themselves. Ursula told all about the high school, and about her matriculation, bragging a little. She felt so poor in here, in this ugly place. Miss Schofield listened with brooding, handsome face, rather gloomy. 
"'Couldn't you have got to some better place than this?' she asked at length. "'I didn't know what it was like,' said Ursula, doubtfully. "'Ah!' said Miss Schofield, and she turned aside her head with a bitter motion. "'Is it as horrible as it seems?' asked Ursula, frowning lightly in fear. "'It is,' said Miss Schofield bitterly. "'Ha! It is hateful!' Ursula's heart sank, seeing even Miss Schofield in the deadly bondage. "'It is Mr. Harby.' said Maggie Schofield, breaking forth. "'I don't think I could live again in the big room. Mr. Brunt's voice and Mr. Harby. Ah!' Oh! She turned aside her head with a deep hurt, some things she could not bear. "'Is Mr. Harby really horrid?' asked Ursula, venturing into her own dread. "'He? Why, he's just a bully,' said Miss Schofield, raising her shamed dark eyes that flamed with tortured contempt. He's not bad, as long as you keep in with him, and refer to him, and do everything his way. But it, it's all so mean. It's just a question of fighting on both sides. And those great louts. She spoke with difficulty and with increased bitterness. She had evidently suffered. Her soul was raw with ignominy. Ursula suffered in response. But why is it so horrid? she asked helplessly. You can't do anything, said Miss Schofield. He's against you on one side, and he sets the children against you on the other. The children are simply awful. You've got to make them do everything. Everything, everything has got to come out of you. Whatever they learn, you've got to force it into them. And that's how it is. Ursula felt her heart fail inside her. Why must she grasp all this? Why must she force learning on fifty-five reluctant children, having all the time an ugly, rude jealousy behind her? ready to throw her to the mercy of the herd of children who would like to rend her as a weaker representative of authority. A great dread of her task possessed her. She saw Mr. Brunt, Miss Harby, Miss Schofield, all the school-teachers drudging unwillingly at the graceless task of compelling many children into one disciplined, mechanical set, reducing the whole set to an automatic state of obedience and attention, and then of commanding their acceptance of various pieces of knowledge. The first great task was to reduce sixty children to one state of mind or being. This state must be produced automatically, through the will of the teacher, and the will of the whole school authority, imposed upon the will of the children. The point was that the headmaster and the teachers should have one will in authority, which should not bring the will of the children into accord. But the headmaster was narrow and exclusive. The will of the teachers could not agree with this. Their separate wills refused to be so subordinated. So there was a state of anarchy, leaving the final judgment to the children themselves, which authority should exist. So there existed a set of separate wills, each straining itself to the utmost to exert its own authority. Children will never naturally acquiesce to sitting in a class and submitting to knowledge. They must be compelled by a stronger, wiser will against which will they must always strive to revolt, so that the first great effort of every teacher of a large class must be to bring the will of the children into accordance with his own will, and this he can only do by an abnegation of the personal self, and an application of a system of laws, for the purpose of achieving a certain calculable result, the imparting of certain knowledge. Whereas Ursula thought she was going to become the first wise teacher, by making the whole business personal, and using no compulsion. She believed entirely in her own personality. 
so that she was in a very deep mess. In the first place she was offering to a class a relationship which only one or two of the children were sensitive enough to appreciate, so that the mass were left outsiders, therefore against her. Secondly, she was placing herself in passive antagonism to the one fixed authority of Mr. Harby, so that the scholars could more safely harry her. She did not know, but her instinct gradually warned her. She was tortured by the voice of Mr. Brunt. On it went, jarring, harsh, full of hate, but so monotonous, it nearly drove her mad. Always the same, set, harsh monotony. The man was become a mechanism, working on and on and on, but the personal man was in subdued friction all the time. It was horrible, all hate. Must she be like this? She could feel the ghastly necessity. She must become the same, put away the personal self, become an instrument, an abstraction, working upon a certain material, the class, to achieve a set purpose of making them know so much each day. And she could not submit. Yet gradually she felt the invincible iron closing upon her. The sun was being blocked out. Often when she went out at playtime and saw a luminous blue sky with changing clouds, it seemed just a fantasy, like a piece of painted scenery. Her heart was so black and tangled in the teaching, her personal self was shut in prison, abolished. She was subjugate to a bad, destructive will. How then could the sky be shining? There was no sky, there was no luminous atmosphere of out-of-doors. Only the inside of the school was real, hard, concrete, real and vicious. She would not yet, however, let school quite overcome her. She always said, it is not a permanency, it will come to an end. She could always see herself beyond the place, see the time when she had left it. On Sundays and on holidays when she was away at Cossete or in the woods where the beech leaves were fallen, she could think of St. Philip's church school, and by an effort of will put it in the picture as a dirty little, low squatting building that made a very tiny mound under the sky, while the great beech woods spread immense about her, and the afternoon was spacious and wonderful. Moreover the children, the scholars, they were insignificant little objects far away, oh, far away, and what power had they over her free soul? A fleeting thought of them as she kicked her way through the beech leaves, and they were gone. But her will was tense against them all the time. All the while they pursued her, she had never had such a passionate love of the beautiful things about her. Sitting on top of the tram-car at evening, sometimes school was swept away as she saw a magnificent sky settling down, and her breast, her very hands clamoured for the lovely flare of sunset. It was poignant almost to agony, her reaching for it. She almost cried aloud, seeing the sundown so lovely. For she was held away. It was no matter how she said to herself that school existed no more once she had left it. It existed. It was within her like a dark weight, controlling her movement. It was in vain the high-spirited, proud young girl flung off the school and its association with her. She was Miss Brangwen. She was Standard Five teacher. She had a most important being in her work now. Constantly haunting her, like a darkness hovering over her heart and threatening to swoop down over it at every moment, was the sense that somehow, somehow she was brought down. Bitterly she denied unto herself that she was really a schoolteacher. Leave that to the Violet Harbys. She herself would stand clear of the accusation. 
It was in vain she denied it. Within herself some recording hand seemed to point mechanically to a negation. She was incapable of fulfilling her task. She could never for a moment escape from the fatal weight of the knowledge. And so she felt inferior to Violet Harby. Miss Harby was a splendid teacher. She could keep order and inflict knowledge on a class with remarkable efficiency. It was no good Ursula's protesting to herself that she was infinitely, infinitely the superior of Violet Harby. She knew that Violet Harby succeeded where she failed, and this in a task which was almost a test of her. She felt something all the time wearing upon her, wearing her down. She went about in these first weeks trying to deny it, to say she was free as ever. She tried not to feel at a disadvantage before Miss Harby, tried to keep up the effect of her own superiority. But a great weight was on her, which Violet Harby could bear, and she herself could not. Though she did not give in, she never succeeded. Her class was getting in worse condition. She knew herself less and less secure in teaching it. Ought she to withdraw and go home again? Ought she to say she had come to the wrong place, and so retire? Her very life was at test. She went on doggedly, blindly, waiting for a crisis. Mr. Harby had now begun to persecute her. Her dread and hatred of him grew and loomed larger and larger. She was afraid he was going to bully her and destroy her. He began to persecute her because she could not keep her class in proper condition, because her class was the weak link in the chain which made up the school. One of the offences was that her class was noisy and disturbed Mr. Harby as he took standard seven at the other end of the room. She was taking composition on a certain morning, walking in among the scholars. Some of the boys had dirty ears and necks, their clothing smelled unpleasantly, but she could ignore it. She corrected the writing as she went. "'When you say, their fur is brown, how do you write there?' she asked. There was a little pause. The boys were always jeeringly backward in answering. They had begun to jeer at her authority altogether. "'Please, miss, T-H-E-I-R,' spelled a lad loudly, with a note of mockery. At that moment Mr. Harby was passing. "'Stand up, Hill,' he called, in a big voice. Everybody started. Ursula watched the boy. He was evidently poor and rather cunning. A stiff bit of hair stood straight off his forehead, the rest fitted close to his meagre head. He was pale and colourless. "'Who told you to call out?' thundered Mr. Harby. The boy looked up and down, with a guilty air and a cunning, cynical reserve. "'Please, sir, I was answering,' he replied, with the same humble insolence. "'Go to my desk!' The boy set off down the room, the big black jacket hanging in dejected folds about him, his thin legs rather knocked at the knees, going already with the pauper's crawl, his feet in their big boots scarcely lifted. Ursula watched him in his crawling, slinking progress down the room. He was one of her boys. When he got to the desk, he looked round, half furtively, with a sort of cunning grin, and a pathetic leer at the big boys in Standard Seven. Then, pitiable, pale in his dejected garments, he lounged under the menace of the headmaster's desk, with one thin leg crooked at the knee, and the foot struck out sideways, his hands in the low-hanging pockets of his man's jacket. Ursula tried to get her attention back to the class. The boy gave her a little horror, and she was at the same time hot with pity for him. She felt she wanted to scream. She was responsible for the boy's punishment. Mr. Harby was looking at her handwriting on the board. 
He turned to the class. Pens down. The children put down their pens and looked up. Fold arms. They pushed back their books and folded arms. Ursula, stuck among the back forms, could not extricate herself. "'What is your composition about?' asked the headmaster. Every hand shot up. "'The—' stuttered some voice, in its eagerness to answer. "'I wouldn't advise you to call out,' said Mr. Harby. He would have a pleasant voice, full and musical, but for the detestable menace that always tailed in it. He stood unmoved, his eyes twinkling under his bushy black eyebrows, watching the class. There was something fascinating in him, as he stood, and again she wanted to scream. She was all jarred, she did not know what she felt. "'Well, Alice,' he said. "'The rabbit,' piped a girl's voice. "'A very easy subject for Standard Five. Ursula felt a slight shame of incompetence. She was exposed before the class, and she was tormented by the contradictoriness of everything. Mr. Harby stood so strong and so male, with his black brows and clear forehead, the heavy jaw, the big overhanging moustache, such a man, with strength and male power, and a certain blind, native beauty. She might have liked him as a man, and here he stood in some other capacity, bullying over such a trifle as a boy's speaking out without permission. Yet he was not a little, fussy man. He seemed to have some cruel, stubborn, evil spirit. He was imprisoned in a task too small and petty for him, which yet, in a servile acquiescence, he would fulfil, because he had to earn his living. He had no finer control over himself, only this blind, dogged, wholesale will. He would keep the job going, since he must, and this job was to make the children spell the word CAUTION correctly, and put a capital letter after a full stop. So at this he hammered with his suppressed hatred, always suppressing himself, till he was beside himself. Ursula suffered, bitterly as he stood, short and handsome and powerful, teaching her class. It seemed such a miserable thing for him to be doing. He had a decent, powerful, rude soul. What did he care about the composition on The Rabbit? Yet his will kept him there before the class, threshing the trivial subject. It was habit with him now, to be so little and vulgar, out of place. She saw the shamefulness of his position, felt the fettered wickedness in him, which would blaze out into evil rage in the long run, so that he was like a persistent, strong creature tethered. It was really intolerable. The jarring was torture to her. She looked over the silent, attentive class that seemed to have crystallised into order and rigid, neutral form. This he had it in his power to do, to crystallise the children into hard, mute fragments, fixed under his will, his brute will, which fixed them by sheer force. She too must learn to subdue them to her will. She must, for it was her duty, since the school was such. He had crystallised the class into order, but to see him, a strong, powerful man, using all his power for such a purpose, seemed almost horrible. There was something hideous about it. The strange, genial light in his eye was really vicious and ugly. His smile was one of torture. He could not be impersonal. He could not have a clear, pure purpose. He could only exercise his own brute will. He did not believe in the least in the education he kept inflicting year after year upon the children. So he must bully, only bully, even while it tortured his strong, wholesome nature with shame, like a spur always galling. 
He was so blind and ugly, and out of place. Ursula could not bear it as he stood there. The whole situation was wrong and ugly. The lesson was finished. Mr. Harby went away. At the far end of the room she heard the whistle and the thud of the cane. Her heart stood still within her. She could not bear it. No, she could not bear it when the boy was beaten. It made her sick. She felt that she must go out of this school, this torture place, and she hated the schoolmaster, thoroughly and finally. The brute, had he no shame? He should never be allowed to continue the atrocity of this bullying cruelty. Then Hill came crawling back, blubbering piteously. There was something desolate about this blubbering that nearly broke her heart, for after all, if she had kept her class in proper discipline, this would never have happened. Hill would never have been called out and been caned. She began the arithmetic lesson, but she was distracted. The boy Hill sat away on the back desk, huddled up, blubbering and sucking his hand. It was a long time. She dared not go near nor speak to him. She felt ashamed before him, and she felt she could not forgive the boy for being the huddled, blubbering object, all wet and snivelled, which he was. She went on correcting the sums, but there were too many children. She could not get round the class, and Hill was on her conscience. At last he had stopped crying and sat bunched over his hands, playing quietly. Then he looked up at her. His face was dirty with tears. His eyes had a curious washed look, like the sky after rain, a sort of wanness. He bore no malice. He had already forgotten, and was waiting to be restored to the normal position. "'Go on with your work, Hill,' she said. The children were playing over their arithmetic and, she knew, cheating thoroughly. She wrote another sum on the blackboard. She could not get round the class. She went again to the front to watch. Some were ready, some were not. What was she to do? At last it was time for recreation. She gave the order to cease working, and in some way or other got her class out of the room. Then she faced the disorderly litter of blotted, uncorrected books, of broken rulers and chewed pens, and her heart sank in sickness. The misery was getting deeper. The trouble went on and on, day after day. She had always piles of books to mark, myriads of errors to correct, a heart-wearying task that she loathed, and the work got worse and worse. When she tried to flatter herself that the composition grew more alive, more interesting, she had to see that the handwriting grew more and more slovenly, the books more filthy and disgraceful. She tried what she could, but it was of no use. But she was not going to take it seriously. Why should she? Why should she say to herself that it mattered, if she failed to teach a class to write perfectly neatly? Why should she take the blame unto herself? Payday came, and she received four pounds, two shillings and one penny. She was very proud that day. She had never had so much money before, and she had earned it all herself. She sat on the top of the tram-car, fingering the gold and fearing she might lose it. She felt so established and strong because of it, and when she got home she said to her mother, "'It is payday today, mother.' "'Aye,' said her mother, coolly. Then Ursula put down fifty shillings on the table. "'That is my board,' she said. "'Aye,' said her mother, letting it lie. Ursula was hurt, yet she had paid her scot. She was free. She paid for what she had. There remained, moreover, thirty-two shillings of her own. She would not spend any. She, who was naturally a spendthrift, because she could not bear to damage her fine gold. 
She had a standing ground now apart from her parents. She was something else beside the mere daughter of William and Anna Brangwen. She was independent. She earned her own living. She was an important member of the working community. She was sure that fifty shillings a month quite paid for her keep. If her mother received fifty shillings a month for each of the children, she would have twenty pounds a month, and no clothes to provide. Very well, then. Ursula was independent of her parents. She now adhered elsewhere. Now the Board of Education was a phrase that rang significant to her, and she felt Whitehall far beyond her as her ultimate home. In the government she knew which minister had supreme control over education, and it seemed to her that, in some way, he was connected with her, as her father was connected with her. She had another self, another responsibility. She was no longer Ursula Brangwen, daughter of William Brangwen. She was also Standard Five teacher in St. Philip's School, and it was a case now of being Standard Five teacher and nothing else, for she could not escape. Neither could she succeed. That was her horror. As the weeks passed on, there was no Ursula Brangwen free and jolly. There was only a girl of that name obsessed by the fact that she could not manage her class of children. At weekends there came days of passionate reaction, when she went mad with the taste of liberty, when merely to be free in the morning, to sit down at her embroidery and stitch the coloured silks, was a passion of delight. For the prison-house was always awaiting her. This was only a respite, as her chained heart knew well, so that she seized hold of the swift hours of the weekend and wrung the last drop of sweetness out of them in a little cruel frenzy. She did not tell anybody how this state was a torture to her. She did not confide either to Gudrun or to her parents how horrible she found it to be a school-teacher. But when Sunday night came, and she felt the Monday morning at hand, she was strung up tight with dreadful anticipation, because the strain and the torture was near again. She did not believe that she could ever teach that great, brutish class in that brutal school, ever, ever. And yet, if she failed, she must in some way go under. She must admit that the man's world was too strong for her. She could not take her place in it. She must go down before Mr. Harby. And all her life henceforth she must go on, never having freed herself of the man's world, never having achieved the freedom of the great world of responsible work. Maggie had taken her place there. She had even stood level with Mr. Harby and got free of him and her soul was always wandering in far-off valleys and glades of poetry. Maggie was free, yet there was something like subjection in Maggie's very freedom. Mr. Harby, the man, disliked the reserved woman Maggie. Mr. Harby, the schoolmaster, respected his teacher, Miss Schofield. For the present, however, Ursula only envied and admired Maggie. She herself had still to get where Maggie had got. She had still to make her footing. She had taken up a position on Mr. Harby's ground, and she must keep it, for he was now beginning a regular attack on her, to drive her away out of his school. She could not keep order. Her class was a turbulent crowd, and the weak spot in the school's work. Therefore she must go, and someone more useful must come in her place, someone who could keep discipline. The headmaster had worked himself into an obsession of fury against her. He only wanted her gone. She had come, she had got worse as the weeks went on, she was absolutely no good. 
his system, which was his very life in school, the outcome of his bodily movement, was attacked and threatened at the point where Ursula was included. She was the danger that threatened his body with a blow, a fall. And blindly, thoroughly, moving from strong instinct of opposition, he set to work to expel her. When he punished one of her children as he had punished the boy Hill, for an offence against himself, he made the punishment extra heavy, with the significance that the extra stroke came in because of the weak teacher who allowed all these things to be. When he punished for an offence against her, he punished lightly, as if offences against her were not significant, which all the children knew, and they behaved accordingly. Every now and again Mr. Harvey would swoop down to examine exercise books. For a whole hour he would be going round the class, taking book after book, comparing page after page, whilst Ursula stood aside for all the remarks and fault-finding to be pointed at her through the scholars. It was true, since she had come, the composition books had grown more and more untidy, disorderly, filthy. Mr. Harby pointed to the pages done before her regime, and to those done after, and fell into a passion of rage. Many children he sent out to the front with their books, and after he had thoroughly gone through the silent and quivering class, he caned the worst offenders well, in front of the others, thundering in real passion of anger and chagrin. "'Such a condition in a class! I can't believe it! It is simply disgraceful! I can't think how you've been let to get like it! Every Monday morning I shall come down and examine these books, so don't think that because there is nobody paying any attention to you, that you are free to unlearn everything you ever learned.' and go back till you're not fit for standard three. I shall examine all books every Monday. Then, in a rage, he went away with his cane, leaving Ursula to confront a pale, quivering class, whose childish faces were shut in blank resentment, fear and bitterness, whose souls were full of anger and contempt for her rather than of the master, whose eyes looked at her with the cold, inhuman accusation of children and she could hardly make mechanical words to speak to them. When she gave an order they obeyed, with an insolent off-handedness, as if to say, "'As for you, do you think we would obey you, but for the master?' She sent the blubbering, caned boys to their seats, knowing that they too jeered at her and her authority, holding her weakness responsible for what punishment had overtaken them. And she knew the whole position, so that even her horror of physical beating and suffering sank to a deeper pain, and became a moral judgment upon her, worse than any hurt. End of chapter thirteen, part two. Read by Tony Foster.